Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of this month's Value of Happy series, this episode sees Sir Michael Marmot, Professor of Epidemiology at University College London and author of The Health Gap, in discussion with Dr. Julian Baggini, co-founder of The Philosopher's Magazine and author of How the World Thinks, on just why some Britain's lives are shortening. This is a remarkably uh, lovely setting to be having this discussion. Um, although maybe a slightly awkward one, given that the theme is of uh, uh, inequalities in wealth and everything and how they affect. So um, we, we may have some brave questions on that. We'll see. Um, the way it's going to work this evening is I'm going to just start by inviting Michael to, I think he's going to read a little bit from his most recent book. And then we're going to have a kind of a bit of a discussion on, on the stage and then we'll open it up to your questions. I'm sure there'll be uh, many. So, Michael, kick us off, if you would. Okay. Well, this is from my book, The Health Gap. Anyone could start at Chapter 1. I'm going to start at Chapter 8. In May 2011, Mary hanged herself. She was found in the yard of her grandparents' house on a First Nations reserve in the province of British Columbia in Canada. She was 14. She was a First Nations Aboriginal Canadian. Her story has particulars. All suicides do. She'd been physically and emotionally abused at home and in her community and possibly sexually abused. Her mother was mentally unstable and heard voices telling her to snap her child's head. Officials attributed the suicide to a dysfunctional child welfare system and to the fact that no one took her complaints of abuse seriously or acted on them. There is another way to look at Mary's sadly foreshortened life. And that is to realise that though her personal tragedy was unique, There are many young Aboriginal Canadians who experience similar tragedies. In fact, the Aboriginal youth suicide rate in British Columbia is five times the average for all young Canadians. Five times. One cannot understand fully why Mary saw no way out without also asking why so many other young Aboriginal people in British Columbia reached the same desperate point. Christopher Lalonde, a professor of psychology at the University of Victoria in British Columbia says, there are media reports of an epidemic of youth suicides among First Nation community. And Michael Chandler, his colleague, studied Aboriginal youth suicide from 1987 to 2000. 
when we think about, you know, there are patterns, we say, why certain patterns of illnesses emerge. And I think that when we think about the causes of those patterns, we immediately think of those more proximate causes. Well, the fact is people know smoking's bad for them, but it follows the social gradient. It's not just up to the individual. Mm. Healthy eating, 10% of income. Mm. Well, okay, I'll eat properly, then I can't pay the rent yeah. and I can't heat the house. Um, I can't buy children clothes. And if we then stand back a bit, I write in the health gap and in the reviews I've done for government about six areas that we think are the causes of health inequalities and are areas where we can take action. Early child development, the importance of cognitive, linguistics, whatever some politicians think. It is not a lifestyle choice. People like unemployment so little that it increases the suicide rate. The fifth is healthy and sustainable places in which to live and work. Talking with a colleague a moment ago before we started about the importance of the natural environment, but also housing, transport and the like. And the sixth is where we started, but look at the social determinants of those proximate causes. So can I just sort of explore a little bit more of this relationship between the social determinants and the, the proximate? Essentially, those are the things that determine whether all people make the healthy lifestyle choices, whether they eat well, yeah. don't smoke, etc., etc. If we had a society in which we had didn't smoke, exercised, all those things, would there still be things causing inequalities in health outcomes? There would still be things causing inequality in health outcomes, but it might well be that the magnitude of the inequalities mm. was smaller, of the health inequalities was smaller. So, for example, and I have it in the book, if you look at life expectancy for men in every country, those with primary education have shorter life expectancy at 25 than those with university education in every country. Mm had the longest life in those with primary education and those with university education. So we can improve things for the worst off, no question about it. So even though people are fantastically rich on a global scale, their health may be worse. And I've compared, for example, Costa Rica. If you look at mean income in Costa Rica adjusting for purchasing power, it's around $17,000. Well, that's at about the 10% mark. In the poor part of Baltimore, and I write about this, half are single-parent families. Problems with housing. Kids with behavior problems by the time they get into school. One-third of young people in Baltimore, in the poor part of Baltimore, Young one-third of boys are arrested between the ages of 10 to 17. And if you went to Glasgow and you said to somebody with this kind of background of total disruption, moving house, even though the income is pretty high on a global scale, mm. it's what they can do with what they have. They're severely disadvantaged with respect to all the things that we think are important for a healthy life. 
Well, that's interesting because you talk about in your opening remarks, you talked about the difference empowerment makes. But how much is that a, a sense of empowerment which is relative to your society or how much is it absolute? Because one might yeah. argue that these days, even the poorest Britain has the capacities to do things that you know, other people could never dream of. I mean, like people say the average person today travels more and in greater comfort than the, the greatest emperors did of antiquity. And, you know, that the poorest person can get their tooth, get better dental care than the richest person in Athens, ancient Athens, ever uh, could. So when we talk about this, how important empowerment is, how much is, it, how much is that your perception of empowerment relative to how much kind of in the mind, and, and if it is in the mind, as it were, it's interesting what the, I'm curious as to how that actually affects your health. What are the mechanisms that are actually producing it? Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, and, and I quote him in a previous book that I wrote, he says, by necessaries, support of life, but whatever the customs of the society, uh, the people of ancient Greece and Rome, now, throughout the greater part of Europe, no self-respecting member of society, even the lowest orders, would appear in public without shame if they didn't have a linen shirt or leather shoes. So, now that's in the mind, but it's in the mind relative to the standards of society. And when I think of things in the mind, I don't think, well, it's not real. Mm -hmm. No, no, the mind's fundamental, absolutely fundamental. But that's how society exerts a big part of its effect. If I can't take my place in public without shame mm -hmm. because I don't have decent clothes, because I can't... If you ask people in Britain, the so-called Breadline Britain survey, what does it mean to be poor today? They don't say anymore not having an inside toilet. And there's good evidence that these stress pathways um, are fundamental, don't develop to the same way if they're subjected to stress in mm. early childhood. Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for her study chromosomes, uh, teamed up with a psychologist in San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco, and they showed that being under stress relates to the length of the telomeres. This is mm. pretty fundamental biologically. It means that the stress pathways influence diabetes. Now, some people have got an answer to that, which is great. You've, stress pathway is very important, and uh, the way in which you would set about reducing the stress is to change the social conditions. But there are some people who would say, hang on, let's just teach everyone mindfulness freeing, that teaching kids in particular um, improve these inequalities of outcome. Well, I, many years ago, I brought up the example of the Titanic. And I thought, if I hear this one more time. So the, the rate of drowning varied by the class of passenger. So if you were in third class, there was a very high rate it wasn't quite as high, and if you were in the luxury class, it was a much lower rate, so social grading. And I, I when it relates to the question you just asked me, you think, hmm, well, why did the first class not drown? Ah, I know, swimming lessons. <laughs> um, they had swimming lessons. Their parents took them off and taught them to swim. And, 
And then if you think it's mindfulness, look, I know it feels cold in that icy water, but just practice mindfulness and meditation and relaxation and it'll all be, get better. Well, the fact is that that would be the problem if you didn't steer ships into icebergs. You wouldn't have to teach people to practice mindfulness or take swimming lessons because uh, nobody would have drowned. Now, when they got from Belfast to the other end, to, to New York, there would still have been a social gradient in health mm. because the people who in the third class would have had a higher rate of death from tuberculosis um, more than people in the middle. But they all would have lived longer. Your work is actually just very thoroughly scientific. It's evidence-based, and in that sense, it's not political at all. But there's a spectrum, not a fundamental division. There's a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum are the people emphasising social conditions, and these are broadly left-right kind of spectrums here. In the book, I talk about 10 top tips for health that Chief Medical Officer um, put out. Don't smoke. If you drink, drink in moderation. Practice safe sex and, and so on. And then I quote David Gordon from Bristol, who has an alternate 10 top tips for health. Don't be poor. Take time to go on a family holiday. Don't live near a polluted road. People are not in control of those things. Nobody lives near a polluted road if they could afford to live somewhere else. Nobody's in a rotten job if they could have a better job. It's clearly beyond their control. But so is a lot of the first list for the reasons I was saying before. If you do care about health, then let's look at the evidence. And the evidence is simply giving people advice because it's up to them doesn't work. Now, if to take the deprived kid in both chance in life, went, had good schooling, tertiary and take drugs and well responsibility, they had a good start in life and they chose to do whatever they did. You wrote a brilliant book about uh, free will, uh, mm -hmm. which I read and enjoyed <laughs> enormously. And we could argue whether, who exercised. If somebody's had a decent start in life and a good education, and then they choose to indulge in risky and health damage or all of those things, how, can, how is it helpful to say it's personal responsibility? Mm. And you must over the years have sort of, you know, you have to tell governments that the two or three things that, they, that, that can actually be done by governments. Well, I tell them the six things that I mentioned um, a few minutes ago. Uh, I want to know what's the one thing I can do. Then I say one thing, only one thing, read my book. <laughs> That's the one thing you should do. I push on doors and if the door's closed, I don't keep pushing. I push on doors that can open. Mm. So, I mean, look what's going on in this um, country at the moment. Uh, the government, if you can call it that, is totally distracted. Toasting more in early child development is just not a good mm. moment because they're not there. But um, a few weeks ago, I was in Coventry because Coventry declared itself a Marmot city. I'm going to Gateshead this week, this next week, 
because Gateshead wants to explore becoming a Marmot City. I went to Manchester and we're talking to Manchester. I met Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, and we're talking about taking action at the regional level in Greater Manchester. Mm -hmm. So if we can't get the attention of central government for the moment because they're totally distracted, uh, quite apart, and in the US, and this is not a Trump thing, but when Obama was president, there was very little action at federal level on these issues. And not a great deal of action at state level. There was some. New York, California, there, there was some. But a huge amount of interest at the city level. So we work at the level where mm. we can get traction. Yeah, this is one of the complications is health is the outcome, but actually health departments, the way yeah. government is organised. The lead comes from the chief executive of the city council and the political leader of the city council. The public health people are advising, but the lead comes from city government, uh, from the grassroots, but not just about health, or from the centre mm. of government, whether it's at the city level or the national level. Before we open it up, we ought to just address directly the question which I think the event has been framed around, which is that some people's lives are, life expenses are getting shorter. And what are those factors? What are the causes behind some lives actually getting shorter in the UK? I've been very cautious about that. I mean, we've been uh, very active right in the middle of publishing these data about the fact that life expectancy stopped improving. Uh, and in fact, the latest figures say it's flat. The life expectancy increase is flat in England. It's going down in Scotland. It's going down in Northern Ireland. And it's going down in Wales. I was asked when we published these figures by BBC, could it be due to austerity? Ex expenditure on the NHS for about 30 years had gone up, the average rate of increase was 3.8% per year in real terms. And in the parliament beginning in 2010, the increase was about 0.9%. And we think it needs to be 2% above older and the like. If you look at the adult component of social care, the adult component of social care spending went down by 6% at a time when the elderly population grew by 16%. So you've got a decline in health service spending, particularly for older people, and a decline in social care spending for older people. That will have an adverse impact on the quality of life of older people. But whether it's responsible for a shortening of life needs urgently to be investigated. In November, I was sitting in Hong Kong and I get a phone call from BBC World Service saying the US has just published figures saying life expectancy in the US is now the biggest single increase. But in the US, they talk about deaths of despair. I would call them deaths of disempowerment. But they vote Trump or they vote caused these opioid deaths. At one level, these opioid deaths caused Trump. Mm -hmm. It was that same level of dissatisfaction with life. Let's take some questions. Thank you for, um, I got so caught up in the discussion, I perhaps left it a little bit longer than I should have done before bringing you in. Who'd like to kick off with a question or a comment? 
I have to agree with you um, on all matters regarding education and poor education or better education. Still, probably like the poor educated, still they may smoke, they may comfort eat, they may drink, even though they know they shouldn't be doing it. So it's not a, a perfect equation that if they're well educated, they won't do those things and then the world will be a perfect place. Not every single person with better education has mm. good health. There are differences, but in general, <clears throat> years of education is a very strong predictor of how good your health is going to be and how long you're likely to, that we have. So it's not perfect. Mm. We all know lots of examples well. So it's not perfect. It never is. It isn't, it isn't destiny. The fact that you're poor doesn't mean your destiny is to despair, etc. It just means you're, you're more likely to. And so in terms of like enabling people not to feel despair if they're suffering one of these, uh, at the rough end of one of these things, it's quite important to remember. I mean, this is obviously a, a really uh, complex topic and so many variables, but I wholly endorse your message of empowerment and people taking then whatever responsibility they can for themselves. I'm a chartered physiotherapist by trade. I run a physiotherapy practice in London treating musculoskeletal problems, which causes us massive problems. The majority of them are due to our lifestyles not due to accidents, they are insidious on spaced information in gyms, in the wrong way to do exercise, and we are bombarded, people are bombarded by so much information. If you are a lay individual, you have no idea where to turn. You are an evidence-based epidemiologist. I'm an evidence-based chartered physiotherapist from, a, from Guy's Hospital. We are moving further and further away from professionals and people are un not understanding where the professionals are. And therefore it's so difficult for people to find that information. I think most people want to be healthier. So our responsibilities as educated individuals to give back to society. I could go on forever, but... Um, <laughs> I, I just think we somehow all have to, if we are evidence-based and we're professionals, we somehow have to give back then to societies with that solid knowledge of education yeah. and not veer it away with people who are have done a weekend course as personal trainers or have done whatever. We, we, we don't know where to turn. A lot of people don't know where to turn and they're getting the wrong advice and it's causing massive issues with Thank people, you. certainly musculoskeletally anyway, from <laughs> my point of view. What I was going to ask you, actually, is what I'd be interested to hear your views about is the inequality and the discrepancy in wealth and how much that affects inequality in health and I think the expectations of what that brings with it. Has that been looked at with evidence-based? Yeah, in our English longitudinal study of ageing, this was men and women 50, age 50 and above, were all ageing picture of subsequent life expectancy than income. Interestingly enough, they both predicted both income and wealth. My own speculation, I'm guessing, income can drop tomorrow, particularly if you're beyond working age, but wealth provides a cushion for the future. You know you can approach the future with support because you've got the wealth there. And it's telling us something in addition 
to current living standards is telling us something about optimism and pessimism for the future. And we have some evidence to support that. Do you think the future will be better or worse? People, that wealth by itself is telling us something. Now, what we see in, I was talking about the US drop in life expectancy three years in a row, the wealth enjoyed by the top 1% in the US, that proportion has gone up dramatically. And it's the biggest of any OECD country, the rich country club, the OECD. Uh, in the UK, it's nowhere near as big as it is in the United States, but it has risen. It has risen. And the other part about wealth um, is that it's squirreling it away that money is not available to spend on early child development or on education or on other good things. Have you found any element of spirituality in your work or any of your colleagues? Or does faith-relatedness touch upon, upon this in any way, have you found? Or do you think it's likely? Yeah, I've, um, my psychology colleagues tell me that the conventional wisdom is that the big five personality traits are fixed. They don't vary that much through life. And we looked at whether the prediction was any different depending on people's personality traits. And it didn't seem to be. The, if you scored high heart disease and similarly with agreeableness and the like. So uh, personality must play some role because it has an impact on the kind of work you do, which in turn will have an impact on your relationships, your income and so on. Uh, but I've not looked at it very thoroughly. I think to say the final contribution here, then we'll have to wrap up, I'm afraid. Yes, please. Can a very strong, coherent community compensate for some of the inequalities that might be there for education and, and wealth? It's highly likely. It's highly likely. I mean, firstly, a review of 147 studies of social isolation in people 15 above showed that social isolation was as smoking. So social isolation is bad, it kills people. The obverse is if you're not isolated, that's good. And one way of not being isolated is being in a community, in a coherent community. So that's direct studies of social capital, of community coherence and the like, most of which point in the direction of saying more cohesive communities, higher social capital. To talk about here, I mean, I've been struck by many things you've been saying. One of your evidence isn't in, this is an opinion, your carefulness to distance to the evidence base of your approach. You have to be sure of those. You're not yeah. the kind of person to just offer an opinion on the basis of speculation, which of course, unfortunately, um, a, a lot of what we hear today, books about how to change your life, etc., are actually massively exaggerating the evidence base. It's an extremely measured book. I can recommend the book. It's going to be on sale in the bar. I'm sure Mike will be happy to sell it. Distribution of wealth is a good thing. So, uh, you know, make your, make your <laughs> contribution to the benefit society by redistributing some wealth on the books. Um, I, can, I can thoroughly recommend it. I read it when it came out and reviewed it. It's very marked up um, because there are so many interesting things in there. And it does cover a heck of a lot. 
and it is it is very important. Um, it's it's a politically very important issue, and you know you were very cautious in what you said about austerity and everything. We're very clearly the kind of political decisions that are going to be made that make a real impact on people's health and everything. Thank you so much, Michael, for such a stimulating evening. Thanks. My pleasure. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. <laughs>